amazing, the new Asian century. Uh, I have to say, I've listened to your last two podcasts where you uh, effortlessly took the role of interviewer. And uh, yeah, you did an amazing job interviewing a nurse and uh, somebody with a economic background. And uh, that was great. So, uh, but of course, right now I figured it was only right that during this episode we switched the roles since I really wanted to talk to you about uh, framing. And uh, yeah, with my uh, psychology background, uh, this is a very interesting subject for me and how certain words can be used to create a certain perception of a person, uh, even a state or even a religion for that matter. Yeah, when you think of framing, uh, what, what, is, what is the first thing that you think of? Framing an issue is to uh, select very clearly a, a perceived reality, to make a perceived reality come true for someone, and to invoke words and metaphors and terms in order to put that person in your position, in order to put that person in your viewpoint, bring that person into your camp. And to promote right. a problem or a policy objective or to promote something that you want done. Now that can be instilling fear, that could be uh, supporting your cause, that could be anything. But these words have very important meanings within politics. And we're all affected by politics. No one is protected from the political reality. Because politics is essentially defined as a battle for policy. Politicians battle for policy, and we are affected by that. So that's, just, that's just my perception of, of what framing, uh, naming and framing is in, uh, in politics. Yeah, of course. General. I think uh, George Lakoff, he had quite a, a recent simple example when he stated the framing that Trump used to describe Hillary. And that the use of the word crooked, crooked Hillary. Oh, yes. Crooked Hillary, uh, yes. Very exactly, good one. Exactly. By using this word so many times that you actually create a perception where you can no longer distinguish uh, Hillary without thinking in a negative way about her because of this overused uh, crooked Hillary term. So this Absolutely. is what George Lakoff... Uh, yeah, I think that's a very good one. And the way to recognize... Like, you know, we, we always deal with the problem of how do you how do you recognize framing right how you how do you recognize a politician that frames a certain situation a certain political event i would say there's three tools to just start off number one would be look at the etymology could you explain etymology for the people who might not uh, who might not know what is what right. is etymology the etymology describes the history of a term what is the, the mainstream use of a term throughout history? And what is the root? Where, where is the Latin root, for example, of this term come from? Which country does it originate from? What were the conditions that this term came into being? So that's the etymological root, right? What is the history of a word? This is very important to understand at some point, you know, why are we still using it? Because a, a, a word sticks right, after it's been popularized for some, in some specific social situation context and eventually mm. gets into a standardization process. So the etymology is very important. That's, that would be the, the first rule. Right. And then, of course, you have the definition. What is the current definition of a word? Now, this is very different from the etymology, right? In, in the past, a word might have a very different meaning, and today it might have a very different meaning, but both of those are very important in understanding and pinpointing what is really meant with this term? 
You know, what, what can we really say about this word that's being used, right? Right. And then comes, what is the utility? What is the function of this term? And the function of this term is just using common sense, basic common sense of at least recognizing a term that might be out of order and then rooting it out, trying to figure out what it means. Right. Well, crooked, you just derived that she is not moral and because she is not moral, uh, she is a crook. It's like you just reason it. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. In I, this I way. It was very well put together and thought through. Right. And why, why, is this, uh, why is this framing so important for you? And why is this framing, um, the framing of certain words, so important for, uh, for perhaps Middle Eastern countries or even for, of course, uh, the United States? Well, we say West Asian countries, right? Because Middle, West East, Asian countries. Middle East is very clearly uh, Eurocentric in the sense that it's the middle of the world based on a map and then it's somewhere in the east. Uh, it's in the middle, it's in the east and it's in the middle of the world. Uh, for Europeans, of course, not for the rest of the world. It's more factually correct to uh, name it uh, West Asian, West Asia, basically. Because no matter I where you put so, it on. Yes, I think that's yeah. a very good start. If, if we talk about the middle of, of the east, right? Because that's what it means. That's when you have to take into account the Peters projection or the traditional uh, Mercator maps, right? Which foster imperialist attitudes and biases uh, initially by the colonial superpowers, right? Which were standardized by the colonial superpowers who, such as Great Britain, which was a maritime power and so forth. Right. Uh, which is biased is, uh... against the rest of the world, right? It positions the Anglo-American world in the West and everything else is just about somewhere else. And we know as political scientists, that you might as well flip the map horizontally. Yeah, yeah, no. China if you call and Russia it, uh, being on the West, anyway, it exactly, doesn't. It doesn't exactly. matter. No, once you call it the Middle East, you base the East based on the Earth, and if you base it on the Earth, you can put it in any way you want, of course. And if you call right. it uh, West Asia, then Asia, yeah, is already set in stone. And then if you take it from the West, it's way more factual. But the entire placement of all the countries on the Earth is an entire. Uh, subject to itself of course so it's very subject to history it's subject to interpretation and west look asia is a continent right exactly. west asia reinvigorates the countries that were so-called middle eastern into the larger perspective of the asiatic continent at the most western flank right so in fact the term middle east is already a, a sort of framing in its own Absolutely. When we look at it this way. And West Asia is just a way of trying to get away from the Orientalist Eurocentric perspective, right? It doesn't necessarily course, have to be course. correct. It doesn't need to be rooted. We all know it's, it's based on a Peter's projection or a traditional Mercator map, uh, which don't necessarily reflect any kind of uh, accuracy, but it's a way of getting away from the colonial past. And it's, exactly. it's, it's the lesser evil, if you ask me. And this framing because this for you uh we talked about this before this for you is very important um to discuss do you have yes. for example uh do you have an example that we can go through these three steps so the the etymology like what is the roots the definition and the utility do you have an example that we can go through these three uh steps and see yeah, perhaps i have i have many yes and especially if we talk about west asia when we talk about naming and framing, especially in the Asian 
situation. And we talk about West Asia. There are many words that are frequently used in the public discourse, in the political discourse, by American politicians. And they are very selectively used to manipulate the public in the United States, in Europe, and so forth. And I think they're very important to, to discuss. So I, you know, I really like that you, uh, you, you brought that format. Let's just talk about, let, let's start with party politics in West Asian countries. And you can apply party this, politics. Yes, you can apply this to any country in the Middle East or West Asia or whatever you want to call it. In Europe, you have parties, correct? You have very mature parties that are very refined and in Western Europe and the United States, correct? You have the Democratic Party, you have the Socialist Parties in Western Europe and so forth, correct? Correct. In West Asian countries, they're not called parties, they're called factions. And this is a very uh, interesting term to use. So whenever you talk about Iranian politics, you're, you're not talking about party politics, such as, you know, the way in which traditional political science literature talks about European politics, you know, in terms of party politics, they talk about factions. And factions, right. let's talk about the root. It comes from ancient Rome. And originally, it's about... Uh, one of the four teams or contenders in a chariot race, in a circus. And later on, if, if we continue looking at the etymological background, it's about oligarchy. It's about a usurping faction. It's about a party seeking by irregular means to bring about a change in government. Do you see where this is going? So you're seeing right. a number of things with faction in the etymology, right? If you call something a faction, you're evoking the frame of a circus. You're evoking the frame of an oligarchy. You're evoking the frame of uh, a usurper. So a faction that is taking power, not uh, legitimately ex extracting power through reasonable elections. And you're, uh, you're, 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 you're talking about a faction in terms of seeking irregular means, not political means that are, that are legitimately rooted in elections, in popular sovereignty. Yeah, uh, by, by means of violence, for example. By means of violence, by means of manipulation, by means of distortion. Uh, and something else that I, you know, is really uh, illustrating this point is that when you talk about factions, you're also evoking the frame of a very archaic, conception of the jungle of the tribe because what you know a, 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 a faction is typically also a tribe of charismatic authority right max weber one of the famous sociologists germans he he typifies he has a couple of ideal types and one of those ideal types is our societies that are ruled by charismatic authorities and this is in stark contrast to political parties which is mature and is refined and is part of a ra what he would call a rational legal authority, right? Right. So the West is the rational legal authority, and what you're really seeing with factions is that they are tribal, that they are dependent on charismatic authorities, that they are usurping, that they take power, they snatch power. Also, I think a faction also is a bit that that you're kind of saying that they are not as big you know they are like uh it's 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 smaller fragmented. it's less it's le yeah exactly fragmented. It's fragmented but the way that this 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 term faction is being designed and used is to maintain that look this is a big jungle 
in the Middle East, and there's no real right. political party like he, like in the civilized West. That is the basic means whereby you know a scholar or a politician will put this word on the agenda and signify the barbarian other versus the rational legal us. I have to tell you, me personally, I've never looked at this word faction in this uh, type of matter. So very interesting that you that you brought us up. And uh, yeah, what? Uh, yeah, throw me another one. I would say uh, surprise me. What, what other word should I? Uh... A, a very good example. Another example, I would say, is the word regime. We've heard this term so many times, and for many people, it seems to be a very strange way of signifying something so obvious because a regime seems to be the bad guy uh and the right. way it's been framed is always that the countries that are regimes are the bad guys it's not the the we never say the british regime we never say the american regime or at least i do but many people <laughs> i know you know from western countries don't say don't say that you know it's not a household term but somehow well, it's the the north korean regime the north korean regime the communist regime right. you know during the cold war the the red scare the communists were the regime the iranian yeah. regime uh, the syrian regime it always seems to work as a dog whistle you know where you whistle something and the dog comes running along and knows immediately what to think and what to do, right? How to act. Definitely, definitely. If I think of a regime, I think of uh, the people in charge should not be in charge anymore. Absolutely. And if we look at the broader wording of regime throughout the centuries, right? If you look at the etymological understanding of the regime, you're very easily going back to 1789, you know, the year of the French Revolution, where right. you basically had a situation where the government that was sitting, the status quo, uh, the monarchy, was called the Ancien Regime. And this Ancien Regime, which was classified in this way, meant that this was an old regime, right? This was a, this was a rule of the old. And regime, therefore, says, talks about rule. So the direct translation of regime is rule. And what you're actually saying with that is that a regime is ruling it's not governing right. and this is also a major difference in the political science literature where western systems govern because governing is done through popular election sovereignty civilization and so forth whereas despots rule countries they impose they dictate ruling is very different from governing in that way and so it's about rule. It's about despotism. It's also about linking the frames of the French Revolution, right? The French Revolution came as something very important in, in Western intellectual thought, in popular culture. And the Ancien Regime was the regime that had to go through a revolution, through even the, the terror that came with Robespierre and many, uh, the, 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 the radicals that came into power, right? Right. Uh, so this ending is, of this uh, this regime stands for freedom, basically. Yes, you have the ancient regime, which was tyranny, and what you get is something very new. It has to go into a, a situation where freedom reigns. Right. And if you look at the definition, so now we're going to look at the definition. If you want a real definition of you know uh, from the Oxford Dictionary, for example, a regime 
and they're being very frank about this, is a government, especially an authoritarian government. I'm now, again, at the same uh, definition. An authoritarian right government is definitely not something that we would describe Western governments being. But somehow, no. uh, the other is always authoritarian. Um, in the Oxford meeting, there's, you know, it's, it, it's, it talks more specifically about a method or system of government, especially one that has not been elected in a fair way. So it, it gives examples, fascist, totalitarian, military, etc. regime. So these are, when we talk about regimes, we're invoking fascism to that country. We're invoking totalitarianism. We're invoking a right. military gov government coming into power military regime coming into power authoritarian stands for favoring or enforcing strict obedience to authority at the expense of personal freedom absolutely and this was the problem with the ancien regime as well there was no personal freedom and immediately once a government official starts using this term about another government western audiences uh, almost automatically switch and understand what the discourse is about and how right. we perceive a government that way. Well, this is a very strong word because they basically use it to justify uh, interventions, right? The word intervention is a very interesting one since you used it. Noam Chomsky wrote a book, Interventions, about US imperialism. And he wrote about you know, the Iraq war and how the US manipulates its way into, into these interventions, what he calls it. But what is an intervention, really? If you look at the etymological meaning of intervention, it's a coming between. So an interpersonal intrusion by, and this is the important part, by friends or family meant to reform, right. meant to reform a life felt to be going wrong. So Noam Chomsky, a linguist, uh, evokes very innocent frames uh, for the United States as the aggressor which is a very strange situation because Noam Chomsky should know better that the word interventions is very strangely used to justify what the United States is doing, or at least whitewash what the United States is doing. Because right. when do we really use the word intervention? We use an in, the, the word intervention is used in, a, in various situations. A medical professional can, for example, intervene in a situation where you have heart failure. Intervening does not mean that you are an aggressor, that you are an invading power with bad intent. It places the actor that is intervening into a very neutral position. What I think of is that you have a bully that is bullying uh, a child, and now we need somebody to come in between and to separate this bully from this child. Yes. So for example, that is exactly what it is. The Iranian government is bullying their people. So now we need somebody to help these people and to intervene in this conflict. So this conflict can end and now the people can be peaceful again. Absolutely. Wow. And is amazing, th this huh? is this is the the paradox. Noam Chomsky one of the world's famous linguists uses a term intervention to talk about American imperialism. That, that is very strange. Because well, knowingly what the United States is actually uh, doing. 
knowing knowing what the United States is doing. It, the U.S. is also is is not very uh, dissatisfied with this term because you know who else intervenes at least on the military area, and which is often applauded for being very good. The United Nations intervenes. The United Nations intervenes in different countries to establish peace if there are two warring parties that are exactly. threatening that are threatening the peace of a country. United Nations exactly. peace missions will intervene in that country to establish security, to establish order. So the UN, actually, is, lifting, uh, the UN is lifting and free riding with the promotion of this term by using it so frequently. And scholars are, uh, use this term without any criticism. It's amazing because by, by saying intervention, you're basically saying that there was already a conflict in this country before you came there. So you're already saying that we have to basically intervene because of an already existing conflict. Absolutely. Let's go back to the etymology. It's a coming between. It's an interpersonal intrusion by friends or family. So this could be a very friendly party. Meant right. to reform a life felt to be going wrong. So it's already going wrong before you right. came there. And you're there to intervene in a situation in order to change what is going wrong. And that is how the United States is getting away with all these war crimes, because constantly people like Noam Chomsky from all the way to the left, to the right wing Neil Hawks are framing the term intervention in, in a way for the public, whereby they don't see the urgency of what their government is doing. And for scholars, uh, let, let's be very clear about scholars in particular, because they have the key to criticizing this, right, in, in discourse, even if it's in a scientific journal nobody reads, but even one scholar is important. They use the term intervention to, to give the impression that they're actually being neutral. A scholar will write a, a scientific article about uh, American uh, wars and exploitation and genocide, but will use the word intervention knowing that if he uses something that's much more critical, he probably won't get published. He won't get the business opportunities, the networking opportunities. So it's a self-censorship that the word intervention is very popular among scholars, but also among politicians. That's amazing. What word would you use instead of intervention? Interference. Interference. <laughs> Right. I think, I think that is, if you want the closest term to remaining somewhat scholarly or, you know, if you want to be politically correct and interference. But what the American uh, hegemony is actually doing is structural war crimes, crimes against humanity. Intervention does not capture this, this, this phase whatsoever. Well, interference doesn't even... Uh...